0: Good morning, I'm glad you're joining us this morning as we look into God's word. And I wanna encourage you to find your Bible if you don't already have that and have it ready. We're gonna look at several passages of scripture this morning as we always do, as we continue in this series Above Every Other, considering the names of God. I hope for you as you've studied these different names and as you've looked back over the previous sermon from the previous week and done a little study on your own, that you're finding that the names of God are drawing you into a closer relationship with him. That's my desire in doing this series, not that you would just have knowledge of God, but that you would actually know Him personally, that you would take the things you're learning into your time with God, and that by faith you would simply appropriate them or apply them to who God is and to know, as Spurgeon said, that you can peel back the wrong ideas that you have about God and actually see Him as He is. For me, getting to study the names of God in detail, this is the first time in my life that I've gone to this much study on the names of God, and so I'm loving it. and there's so many passages of scripture each week that we're not able, that I'm not able to bring out in the message just for the sake of time. But each week at the podcast, uh, during the podcast, the Extra Point podcast, I will take some time to go through and share some other passages of scripture that relate to the specific names of God that we've talked about here on Sunday mornings. But my goal and hope for you is that you're drawing near to God and growing in your relationship, that your knowledge of God it's not simply something you're discovering, but you're owning it. You're actually taking it into your personal relationship with him. And then you're doing something else. You're actually influencing the people in your life with the truths about God that you're learning. That you're, you're doing what David did in Psalm 8, verse 1, when he said, Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who have displayed your splendor above the heaven. And of course, the name for God that he uses here is Yahweh. And so he says, actually, O Lord, the word is Adonai there, O Adonai, our Yahweh. And we talked about before who Yahweh is, that Yahweh is self-existent, that he's personal and he's present. And so David is proclaiming to everyone who will listen to him and ultimately through all of time in revelation of the scripture, that how majestic is the name of the Lord. In our case, the names of the Lord, as we study the various names of God, we're finding and realizing how majestic God is. And that idea of majesty encompasses the two ideas of his transcendence and, and his eminence, the parts about him that we could never duplicate or imitate, but the, but the but also the closeness of, him, of who God is in our lives. And so David proclaims that to whoever will listen to him, how majestic is your name. And I don't know about you, but I can relate to that. I feel like that as I study the names of God, I wanna give him praise because of his amazing character and who he is. So this morning, I want to introduce two more names to you as we study the various names of god from the old testament and the name today one of the first names is the name elkanah and elkanah simply is the combination of the name elohim and the word kana and elohim we know means powerful supreme and sovereign god and then the idea of kana is jealous so elkanah means god is jealous and so there's places in the scripture that reveal that to us where do we get that idea from well You'll remember in Exodus chapter 20, that Exodus chapter 20 is basically the revelation of God to Moses on Mount Sinai of the 10 commandments. So God is giving Moses uh, these important commands, the 10 most important things that he wants for his people to do or not do as they form as a nation, as they form as a people of God. And so Moses in that passage talks about um, the things that God wrote on those original two stone tablets. And in verse one, it says this, then God, and the name is Elohim, Then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord, your God, Yahweh. Elohim, Yahweh actually are used together here. Powerful, supreme, and sovereign, self-existent, personal, and present, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven, above, or on the earth beneath, or in the water underneath the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, Elohim Yahweh, am a jealous God, Elohim plus the idea of Kana, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So here at the very outset of the formation of the nation of Israel, of the people of God, before we even get to the third commandment we see that God introduces himself as a jealous God, Elkanah. The idea that God is actually jealous. Later on in Exodus 34, we're actually going to see that that's a name of God. In Exodus 34, what happened between Exodus 20 and Exodus 34 is, you know, as Moses came down the mountain, the people had gotten restless and they had looked around and said, we don't know where Moses went. We haven't seen him. We don't know what happened to him. So they took all their gold and they melted it down and they made a golden calf to worship And Moses comes down the mountain and he sees that and he takes those original two stone tablets and he throws them in a fit of rage against the ground he breaks them. And so in Exodus 34, he's going back up the mountain for a redo. God's going to rewrite the Ten Commandments and his law on two stone tablets for all the people. And so in that place where God sort of goes back over and recites again the Ten Commandments, he says this, as he describes to Moses that they're not only going to be God's people, but God's going to take them to this promised land that he had promised their fathers. And he's going to take them to the land of Israel, the land that was known as Canaan in the Old Testament. And when he gets there, there's already going to be people living there, people who have houses and lands and farms and animals and, and all these different things. And he says that when you get there, you're going to drive them out and be careful that you don't mix with them, that you don't absorb their religion and become compromised in your relationship with me. And so that's the context of what he's telling him here. And so he says in verse 12 through 14 of Exodus 34, watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst, but rather you're to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord, Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, Kana, is a jealous God, El kana So what he's saying is, and, and every time this idea of jealousy is mentioned, it's in the context of idol worship. Does that surprise you that God is a jealous God? For some of you, that may be a new idea, because oftentimes what we do when we think of jealousy is we think of human jealousy, And almost always, when we think of human jealousy, we think of it negatively. We think of it in the context of insecurity, possessiveness, control, maybe anger or rage. And we may have a hard time assigning those kind of things to God. So so oftentimes, human jealousy is very destructive. So how do we go about understanding God as a jealous God? Well, like so many of God's attributes and qualities... What we have is God communicating to us in a way that we can understand with our limited minds, taking common ideas <clears throat> and communicating to, to us about an uncommon God. That can be tricky, and sometimes we get it backwards. Sometimes we take what we know about a human emotion or a human quality, and we think that God's like that, when essentially we should say, let's start with God. And if God describes himself as jealous and says that his name is actually jealous, then let's start with God and and work from that. Let's let God be the perfect example of what it means to be jealous and not look at man. There are many places in the Bible that speak specifically about the jealousy of God. But I said said a moment ago, in every one of those contexts, the jealousy of God is talked about in the context of idol worship. Um, The people of Israel struggled with worshiping other gods, small g, for all of their existence. And... And so you go back into the Old Testament, you understand that essentially God was jealous of anything that threatened Israel's supreme love for him. Now, what what basis do I have for saying that? Well, if you go back to Deuteronomy and you look in Deuteronomy chapter six, verses uh, four and five there, it says this, this, the Shema, you may be familiar with this. It says, hear O Israel, the Lord Yahweh, the Lord our God, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord Yahweh is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now think about that, the, the names of God that we've already looked at. Let me go back and read it and just use those names. Hear, o Israel, Yahweh, our, our Elohim, the Yahweh is one. And you shall love Yahweh, our Elohim, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So at the very beginning of the formation of the people of Israel, God says, this is what's most important. Jesus later echoed that. In Matthew 22, you remember the the lawyer came up to Jesus and he essentially asked him a question to try to trap him, to try to trick him. Uh, And he asked Jesus this question, what's the most important commandment? And uh, Jesus didn't say, well, okay, they're all equal. They're all equally important. He didn't say that. He said something very interesting. He said, there is one commandment that's more important than all the rest. And here it is. And he quoted Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. That's the most important commandment. So what he was saying is, and then he went on to say the second is likened to it. And then he said this in verse 40, which is really, really important. He said, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And so what Jesus was saying is everything that the Old Testament, that God was trying to teach the nation of Israel and ultimately all of us through the the Old Testament were these two things. God was trying to teach us that the most important thing to him is that we love him supremely and that we love other people like we love ourselves. And Jesus said on those, two, on those two teachings, on those two ideas, hang all the Old Testament, all the teaching of the Old Testament. So God was after supreme love from his people, the Israelites. That's what God wanted. And so into that context, they, they went into this new land. And when they got there, there were all kinds of small G gods And there were all kinds of people that worshiped these different gods in different ways. And they fell victim to the idea that if they only worshiped Yahweh, if they only worshiped Elohim, that somehow their crops wouldn't grow correctly. Their animals wouldn't uh, grow and produce the kind of resources that they needed to live. And so essentially they thought we need God plus these other small G gods. And that was a fallacy in their thinking. And God didn't take it simply as you guys are doing something to survive. God took it as a direct threat against their love for Him. And I love that because what God's after in their lives is love. God wants their love and God would never be satisfied. If you read throughout the entire Old Testament, God would never be satisfied with anything except their supreme love for Him. And honestly, that's true for you and me. God will never be satisfied with our lives unless we love Him above everything and everyone else in our lives. That's what Matthew 22, 37 through 40 is all about. And Jesus said, this is the most important commandment. So anything that threatens your love for God provokes the jealousy of God, a righteous jealousy, because there's no argument that God the Most High, El Elyon, that God deserves your love above everything else in your life. For Israel, they missed it. They missed this over and over again because they didn't really know God. They thought that they could just show up on the right days and bring the right sacrifices and say the right words in their worship services, and that somehow God Most High, Elohim, Yahweh, uh, Yahweh Shalom, Elkanah, that somehow God with all these different names would be satisfied if they just went through the motions of religion. But none of those things, going through the motions, showing up on the right day, giving your money when you're supposed to, making a sacrifice, saying the words or singing the words at the right time. None of those things really get to the heart of the matter. God wants your love. God wanted their love. And when he didn't have it, it caused him to be jealous righteously for them to love him as he deserved to be loved. But they didn't get it right because they didn't know that about him. They didn't understand even his jealousy. So God's revealed himself Why would he be jealous for anything in your life? Well, because his love for you is real. His love for you is personal. He's jealous of anything in your life that threatens your supreme love for him. And that really is the essence of all sin. When we choose anything in our lives to love more than we love him. The Israelites would have said that they love God But they also would have said that they love Baal, and they love their possessions, and they love their status in the world, and they love a lot of other things. And their loves were kind of equal. They didn't love God most of all. Uh, Several years ago, I I heard a guy, a pastor, actually share a story about how God dealt with him in his own life around a particular issue. I'm going to use the name John. That's not his real name, but I don't think he would seek any glory for himself, and I don't want to use his real name for this, but He said that for many, many years, he and his wife, once their kids were raised and out of the house, that he had desired to have a Harley Davidson. He loved the idea of in his later years, his retirement years, being able to just cruise around on a Harley and he'd always admired them and looked at them but he never could afford them. And so his wife and he discussed that idea of just saving their money and so they did that for several years and saved up enough money where he was able to go buy exactly the kind of Harley Davidson motorcycle that he wanted. Well, a friend of him, a friend of his that lived about two hours away, a neighboring pastor, had invited John to come to his church and lead a revival. And so John and his wife decided, since it was a nice part of the year and the weather was going to be nice, that they would actually just ride his Harley over there. And so they did that. They packed their stuff in the saddlebags, and they got on the Harley, and they drove over. And so they got to the church on a Saturday afternoon. They met their friend, the pastor there. And they didn't tell the pastor that John didn't tell him that he'd gotten a new motorcycle. So when he got there, the pastor came up, and he was he was just like, oh man, this is the most beautiful motorcycle. Is this yours? Where'd you get this? How did you afford this? And so they were just talking and he told the story about you know, saving the money and that they finally had this motorcycle and he was so excited about it. And he said, I thought we'd just ride it over here. I figured I could just ride around with you in your car this week while we're here, but we just wanted to ride the bike over here. And so they were talking about that. And John said that, that his friend wanted to take him in the church, just show him around, let him get a lay of the land for what was gonna happen and where he would be preaching Uh, the next morning and for the next few days in this revival service. And he said, the moment that I stepped into that church building, he said, the Holy Spirit of God said to me this thing. He said, John, I want you to give your Harley Davidson to your friend. (laughs) And John was like, "Uh, wait a minute, I didn't really hear that. That's crazy. That's a crazy idea. But, But as they walked around the church that Saturday afternoon and his friend was just showing him around, The Holy Spirit was just bearing down on him. John, I want you to give the Harley Davidson to your friend, the one you just bought, the one you just paid off, the paid cash for. I want you to give it to this man. He'll never be able to afford one. I want you just to give it to him. So John, that night, got back to his hotel and his wife knew that something was bothering him, but she knew that he was getting ready spiritually to preach this revival. And and so she said, I just want to ask you a question. Are you okay? Because it seems like, I know you've got a burden on your heart for what you're gonna preach tomorrow and the the days ahead, but you just seem like you're troubled about something. And women often know that about their husbands because they have that intuition, they're close in the relationship. And she just said, something's wrong, what's going on? And he said, you're never gonna believe this, but the Lord told me the moment we stepped into that church today, that I'm supposed to give my Harley Davidson to my friend. And she said, then give it to him. (laughs) And he said, really? You'd be okay with that? I mean, we've sacrificed. She said, honey, if the Lord gave it to us, he can give us another one. That's not a problem. Just if he tells you to do it, do it. And so the next morning when he got to church, he found his friend and everybody was still, you know, away at their homes, hadn't come to church yet. And they were gonna pray together. And he said, listen, I have something for you. He said, here's the keys to the Harley Davidson that I just bought. And the Lord told me to give it to you because I can't get up and preach to people that God should be the most, the most valuable, most supreme love in their life if I have something in my life that actually is threatening my love for God. And he said, I can't handle it. I know I can't handle that. And he hadn't even told his wife that. He said, I can't handle it, but I know that if it threatens my love for God, it provokes the jealousy of God. And I do not want to provoke the jealousy of God in my life because I love God that much. And so he gave his friend the motorcycle. Isn't that amazing? If someone would be that tuned in to the Holy Spirit in their life to say, if the Lord said, I wanna to touch this thing in your life and I wanna remove it from your life, whatever it is, because it threatens your love for me, because my jealousy is provoked by this thing, because God knows our hearts, would you be willing to set whatever that is aside? And if you wouldn't, isn't that the nature of sin in our lives? When we go, oh, I'm not gonna do that. No, I've saved my money, I justify this, I, you know, This is what I want, and and I can't believe you're asking me to do this, God. Does that describe you sometimes that we fight back against what God wants for us when He just wants most of all to be the supreme love of our lives? Love seeks love. Isn't that what you want as a spouse? Don't you want your spouse to love you more than any other human being on the planet? And when they don't love you more than any other human being on the planet, when they have some other human in their life that they love more than you, isn't that the source of all kinds of problems and righteous jealousy in your life? Certainly. So when God reveals himself as as Elkanah, he's saying, I'm a jealous God. I desire for my people to love me above everything else. Now this week, one of the things you can do, if you wanna read more about this, is you can actually go to Jeremiah chapter two. Jeremiah was a prophet that God sent to his people to basically speak to them about this idea and this subject, that they had forsaken God and they had gone after other idols. They had had gone to other gods to worship in their life. They were loving other gods more than they were loving the true God. And so I I don't know that you should read Jeremiah 2 with your kids necessarily. It's pretty graphic in some places. You might wanna read it first, just you as a couple or you as an individual. And then if you feel like your kids are old enough to handle it, I mean, it's, it's biblical, right? It's the Bible, it's God's revelation but it talks and shows you the heart of God. And while it never really, I don't think it mentions Elkanah in that passage specifically, it's definitely a description of the jealousy of God for his people. So if you just want to do more study this week, that'd be an excellent place for you to go and to look at that. Here's the thing I want to ask you related to this. Do you take sin seriously? Do you take the sin of loving God, of not loving God supremely? Do you take that seriously in your life? Because God always takes that seriously. Paul also in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he talks about the nation of Israel. He looks back on their history and he talks about their struggle with idol worship. And that's another place you could read. But he ends that passage by applying it to the Corinthians. And he says this in verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 10, he said, are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And so it's not just something that could happen for an Old Testament follower of God. It can happen for a New Testament follower of Jesus as well. It can happen to any of us. That we can have something in our life that that causes God to be jealous because it threatens our supreme love for Him. God is Elkanah, He is a jealous God. The second name that I want you to know this morning is the idea of Yahweh, and this is a weird word, so I'm not even sure I'm saying it correctly, but it's Yahweh Mekhadesh. Mechadish, and it's, it's, it means this. It's the idea of combining Yahweh with the word Mechadish, obviously. And so it's Yahweh who is self-existent, who is personal, who is present. And then the word Mechadish means sanctify, to sanctify or to set apart. And that may be an idea that's a little bit foreign to you. And, and yet that's a name for God. One of the names that he reveals himself is the God who sanctifies, the God who sets us apart. In Leviticus chapter 20, there's a passage of Scripture, and again, it deals with idol worship. It deals with the struggle that the Israelites had over and over again because one of the things they struggled with, if you can even believe this, is when they got to the promised land, when they got to this land that God had promised to give to them, that one of the gods that the Ammonites worshipped was the god Moloch. And Moloch, to worship Moloch, you had to basically sacrifice one of your children to worship him. Can you imagine that? And so there's this bronze image of this God and they would, they would heat that image up and they would actually go set their children on that image and they would die as a sacrifice to this fake God, Molech. But the people did that because they felt like if they didn't do that, that their crops wouldn't grow, their animals wouldn't reproduce right. And so they didn't trust God solely. They felt like they had to also worship according to the laws and, and the ways of Molech. Well, so God warns them in Leviticus chapter 20, and he reveals himself there as Yahweh Meccadish. And he says this in verse six, as for the person who turns to mediums or spiritists to play the harlot with them, I will also set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. You shall consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy. For I, the Lord, your God, it's Elohim Yahweh again, shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord, who sanctifies you. In other words, I am Yahweh Mekadesh. I am the God who sets you apart. And so what he was saying is, because you're with me and you're part of me, you're a part of my uh, covenant relationship with the nation of Israel, I don't want you to be like everybody else. I don't want you to act like everybody else. I don't want you to do the things that everybody around you is doing. You're different. You're sanctified. You're set apart. God never intended for his chosen people to participate in idol worship. So he took the most insignificant group of people that were on the planet, slaves even, to the nation of Egypt, didn't have any political power, they didn't have any treasury, they had no king, they had no army, they had no weapons, they were just slaves. And he took this insignificant group of people and he set his love on them. And he said, I'm going to choose you, you're going to be my people and I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to give you amazing things in your life if you will love me supremely and I'm gonna be your God and you're gonna be my people, and I'm gonna show the rest of the world, essentially, what it looks like if I'm your God. And so that's exactly what God set out to do, but the people of Israel constantly rebelled against him. And so that idea of setting them apart, of having a specific unique purpose for them is the idea of sanctification. That God chose this people and he said, you're not gonna be like every other group of people. You're gonna be unique, you're gonna have a special purpose I'm gonna use you to show the rest of the world what I'm like. So there's an excellent example that some of you have in your home right now. So if you have children, um, this is a thing you can talk about after the sermon today as you eat lunch together or whatever. But here's an excellent example of what it means to sanctify something or to have something in your home that's sanctified. Most of you like me have a cabinet in your home or many of you do that you place china in. Now, in our house, we have a, a cabinet that my father had custom made for my mom. She always had this particular idea of a china cabinet that she wanted, and she could never find exactly what she wanted. And my dad was a home builder, and so he had his finished carpenter actually take her ideas and plans and build this amazing china cabinet for her. So about 20 something years ago, she was going to move into a different home. She didn't want it anymore, and and she said that she wanted to give it to us. So I brought it to Longview, I repainted it. We took all the china that we had gotten when we got married, all the fine china, whatever that is, I don't know much about that, and we put it in that cabinet. And in 20 something years, I can only think of maybe four or five times we've ever actually opened that cabinet, but only on a couple of occasions that we ever pulled that china out and actually ate off of it. And when we did, we had to be very careful. And then we got through, we couldn't put it in the dishwasher. We had to hand wash it and hand dry it and carefully put it back into the china cabinet. Now, what does that have to do with being sanctified? China, fine china is an excellent example of something being set apart, having a special use or purpose. You could even say being holy, like it's not common. It's not, we don't eat off china every day at my house. We rarely eat off China. And in fact, my mother's China cabinet growing up, I don't think we ever ate off the China that I could ever remember on any occasion. So the idea of China is that it has a special purpose. It's sanctified. It's set apart for something unique and special. And that's a great idea to think about when you think about our lives as being sanctified. In fact, Paul says this in Second Timothy related to that same idea in verse 20. He says, Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but vessels of wood and earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. God set Israel apart and said, you're like fine China. You're not everyday wear. You're not the stuff we eat off all the time. You have a special, unique purpose. And and I've already talked about what that was. Well, it's not just true of the people of Israel in the Old Testament, it's also true of what happens in our lives as well. I think there's a prevalent idea that exists in our culture and and it's true for not only Christians, but non-Christians today. And and I think it's it's the danger of self-identity. And you say, what in the world are you talking about? And how does that relate to being sanctified? Well, this is how it goes together. Most people have a certain way of identifying themselves and they they either go back and look at the family they grew up in, and they take some ideas from that, what their parents did or didn't say about them, who they were in the family birth order, uh, how they related to their family of origin, and maybe even their extended family. They take those ideas, and then they take things that they have in common with their particular age group, their generation, because the, every generation has common influences that shape them and 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 help them determine who they are to some degree. And then experience, just the things we do in our lives and the experiences that we have. People take those things and maybe a few other things and they form this box called self-identity. And they say, this is me right here. I'm this, 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 and this, and I'm not that over there. And we take all those ideas and we make this box. And then we say, this is me. And so God says, wait a minute, wait a minute. I didn't make that box. Certainly... I can use what's in that box and I can use the influences you've had and your experiences in your life and even the things you share in common with your generation. But I have actually set you apart from your box. I have actually called you to be different. I've called you to be holy. I've called you to a different kind of life that has nothing to do with that box. Because when we get ourselves in a certain box, we don't let anyone, sometimes even including God, talk us out of it. And so when someone comes along with an opportunity for us to do something that doesn't fit in our box, we say, oh, that's not me. I can't do that. That's not the way I identify myself. Part of what we see going on in our culture in terms of gender confusion and even sexual orientation, those those discussions and conversations relate to the fact that people are creating their own identity. They're saying, well, I'm not that, I'm this. And here's the problem with that. We're the creation, we're not the creator. The Creator is the only one who can speak to who it is that we're supposed to be. And the Bible says that he is uh, Yahweh Mekadesh. He is the God who sanctifies us. He sets us apart. He, he does what he wants in our life as we submit to him and as we love him. And so there's a crisis going on in our culture, I believe, about that very issue, but I think it happens in the church as well. And so take those two ideas together. The idea of Elkanah, the God who is jealous, And then Yahweh Mekadesh, the idea of God who sanctifies. And how do those two things go together? They go together like this. If you love God supremely in your life and you're seeking to love him more than anything and anyone else in your life, then you will live your life very differently from most everyone else. You'll spend your money differently. You'll treat people differently. You'll love your wife or your your husband differently. You'll treat your kids and lead them differently. Uh, you'll do everything in your life differently and then you'll do this as well. You'll deal with your sin differently. If you understand those two things and you seek to honor the God, honor God and love him as the most high God in your life, your greatest love, then you will be set apart. You will live, you'll spend your time, you'll do everything differently than a lot of other Christians and everyone else who's not a believer in Jesus Christ but you'll do that last thing I said too. You'll deal with sin differently. Sometimes people deal with their sin in very unhealthy ways. For example, God convicts us of something. He he lets us know His Holy Spirit lands on us in some way that causes us to go, this is wrong in my life. And maybe when I even talked about jealousy just a minute ago, maybe that happened for you. Maybe the Holy Spirit began to just work on you about something that you don't really wanna deal with. And sometimes... People conceal their sin, they hide it. They're unwilling to confess it. They're unwilling to walk away from it. The Bible says to repent of your sin. And that word repentance literally means to change your mind about it. It's a realization of, wow, what I did was totally wrong here. What I did was offensive to God, hurt God. It angered God, it provoked his jealousy. And I don't want that in my life. And so I'm gonna come before him and do it. 1 John 1, 9 says, I'm gonna confess my sin. That means I'm gonna agree with God about it. I'm gonna to say to God, yes, I, I make no excuse, I did it. And I know you're the God of mercy. I know you're the God of grace, so I come before you expecting you to give me mercy and grace in my life. But I'm, I'm letting go of that sin. I'm turning my back on that sin. The opposite of that is embracing sin. It's doing what Paul said, making, Paul said, make no provision for the flesh. Sometimes we make a provision for sin in our lives. Like right now, if you know you have a sin in your life, that you're hiding, that you're concealing from the people around you. Maybe you're even concealing it from somebody that you've agreed to be accountable to. And you're you're not being honest about it. You know God knows and you know about it, but you've been unwilling up until this point to actually repent, to actually forsake it, to walk away from it, to change your mind about it. Maybe because you feel like you can't, maybe because you feel like it's an addiction in your life, a struggle that you just have over and over and over again. And how do you get past that? The, one of the most dangerous things about unconfessed sin, unrepented of sin, is that it completely stagnates our fellowship with God, our relationship with God. It doesn't mean that God abandons you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ or that he forsakes you, but it means that your fellowship with him is cut off. It means that your ability to go forward and grow in your relationship with him is stagnant. It can't happen. So you just have silence between you and God. The only thing you hear from God is what you constantly hear, and that is you need to repent of this. You need to drop this. You need to forsake this and walk away from this. So this morning, that's a heavy thing. The idea of not loving God supremely and having to be honest about that is a very heavy thing. The idea that you could actually provoke his jealousy, Elkanah, is a heavy thing. And yes, I can lead you in a word of prayer of repentance this morning, but I feel like for some of you, that's not enough. I feel like for some of you this morning, you need to think in the presence of God, not only about God, but you need to think about your life. You need to think about your love's, You think about the sin in your life. I mean, God is jealous because He loves you. That communicates and screams how much He loves you. He doesn't just want you to walk through the motions. He actually cares about your heart. And so this morning, what I would encourage you to do is as soon as this is over or sometime later today, is go find a quiet place. And if you need to, one of you needs to watch your kids and the other of your spouse go do this and take turns, but go take some inventory. Several years ago, I was in Africa and my partner and I were just traveling around this little village and we were sharing the gospel with different people. And we came upon these two ladies that were sitting. And, um, and, and for a, a gringo, a white man, to come to Africa is kind of a novelty. And so they all listen. They want to know why you're here, what message you're bringing, what, what are you here to talk about. And so we share the gospel with them. And this, I'll never forget this one lady said, both these ladies received Christ. They both gave their life to Jesus Christ at the end of our conversation. And then one lady excused herself. She got up and she said, I need to leave and go back to my home. She said, there are more things that I need to repent of. And she told the translator, essentially, she'd been involved in witchcraft and that she needed to spend more time actually going through and repenting of the individual things in her life that she had done to offend God. So I would say to you, sometimes when our sin's heavy, when we have a lifestyle sin, something that in order for us to stop doing it, we're going to have to change things in our life. Whatever that might be for you, it may take more time. And then it may take the counsel of a good friend or an accountability partner or a minister or a pastor. And we're available to you this week. You can contact our church office here or in Marshall, and we would love a chance to visit with you, to help you, even though we're socially distanced, to be able to minister to you, to help you get back to the place where you are seeking to love God supremely. And then you'll understand what it means for him to set you apart. Now, I realize many of you may be watching this and you know that your sin is ever before you. You've never been forgiven for your sin. The Bible says for all of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's true for every single person, including me. But the gift of God is is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the gift of God. That God gave his son that whoever would put their trust in him wouldn't perish, wouldn't go to hell when they die wouldn't be separated from God forever, but would have eternal life. And this morning, I wanna give you a chance to do that. I wanna give you a chance just to put your trust in Jesus Christ and say, I don't want my sin. What I want is a relationship with God. I wanna have a love relationship with God and he wants that for you. And so this morning, the Bible says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And you can do that right where you are. And I'd be glad to lead you through that. There are no magic words. He knows your heart, so faith exists in your heart. If you believe he's who he said he is, the savior of the world, that he died and he rose again, that he's the son of God and the savior and he can save you, then you simply need to put your trust in him and he will save you. And you can do that by calling on his name. So I'm gonna lead you in a prayer right now. Nothing magical about it, just a way to call on his name to say you want him to save you. And you could repeat after me. You can say, dear God in heaven, I want Jesus to come into my life right now. I'm sorry for all the sin in my life and I wanna turn away from it. I forsake it. There's nothing I want more in my life right now than Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. Thank you for forgiving me. Now Help me live in a way that honors you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.